You're listening to the Paleo NP podcast, episode number 17. Welcome to the Paleo NP podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Paleo NP podcast. This week, I wanted to talk about digestion because it seems like I've been a broken record in talking about some of this stuff lately, and that usually means that it's just time for me to do a podcast episode about it. So I just got back from a day trip turned overnight trip, thanks to the weather, to Kodiak, Alaska, which is part of the reason that this episode is coming out a day late. I had some catching up to do when I got home. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with Alaska, which is where I live, Kodiak is an island off of the southern coast, and I just learned that it's actually the second largest island in the United States. The largest is the big island of Hawaii. Anyway, I went there to do some consults with a friend, and the weather was really bad, which is actually pretty normal for there, and we got stuck overnight and then had a pretty scary flight home, made worse by the fact that I have a moderate fear of flying, but I'm home and I'm alive and that's all great. But while I was seeing patients, I did a lot of talking about digestion, so I wanted to do a podcast because I think that it's such an important topic. So we all eat food and are all therefore familiar with digestion to a certain extent, but for a lot of people, what happens to their food after they chew and swallow it kind of remains a mystery. And also where things can go wrong and how to keep that from happening seems to be something that not a lot of people really understand. So I thought it would be worth spending some time talking about some of those things. One of the most important things to know about your digestive tract is that it serves as a barrier and everything that is on the inside of your digestive tract is actually on the outside of your body. And the job of this barrier is to determine what gets into your body and what stays on the outside. In general, we want nutrients to get in because that's how you get fuel for your body and we want toxins and waste products to stay on the outside. The other part of your digestive tract's job is not directly related to its barrier function, but is to make sure that all the things that don't get into your bloodstream are excreted in a timely manner. Because if stuff sits around for too long, those toxins and other waste products can damage your gut and cause increased intestinal permeability, or what a lot of people know as leaky gut. And once your gut becomes leaky, this is when you start to have issues because it becomes hard for your gut to determine what should be let in and what should stay out. And then you end up having things that should stay on the outside crossing into the bloodstream. And your immune system attacks those things because they are seen as foreign invaders. And this leads to increased inflammation and in some cases autoimmune disease. The process of digestion actually starts in your mouth. Chewing your food begins this process, and then there are enzymes that are in your saliva that 
help keep the process going and those enzymes get released when you start chewing too. So just inhaling your food and not doing a good job of chewing it can really set you up for some digestive issues because you're missing steps of the process right from the start. Chewing also helps to signal your body that food is coming further down the digestive tract and gets other juices flowing. So missing that first step of just doing something as simple as chewing your food is critically important to the whole process. We need to think of digestion as a top-down process. So if things don't happen properly at the top, they aren't going to be fixed or happen properly further down the line either. So when you miss a step anywhere in the process, so say for example that stomach acid is not being secreted in the right amounts, then your digestion will be impaired no matter how, things, how well things are working farther down in the process. So after you chew your food and swallow your food, it ends up in your stomach. Your stomach acid, which is hydrochloric acid, is primarily responsible for breaking down proteins and then for turning your food into this sludgy substance that's called chyme, which is not very appetizing to think about, but it's an important step in the process because your food needs to be broken down to a, broken down a certain amount before it can pass into your small intestines. And just a side note about stomach acid, one of the reasons a lot of people who haven't eaten a lot of meat or who only eat fish and then start eating other meat again complain about digestive issues is related to stomach acid. People who have been vegetarians tend to have lower stomach acid than those who eat meat. So if you go from not eating meat to eating meat without a lot of stomach without enough stomach acid, you're going to have some digestive upset because the protein isn't being broken down. So I always recommend to people who are looking to increase their animal protein intake to start really slow and even start with meat that's cooked in the slow cooker, which essentially is beginning the digestive process outside of the body in order to get their body to start producing more stomach acid and avoid that sort of digestive upset. Another important thing to understand is that if you have enough stomach acid and the pH of the chyme is in the right range, that's actually part of the signaling process for your pancreas to produce and secrete pancreatic enzymes. So if you have low stomach acid and the chyme doesn't have the right pH when it passes into your small intestines, your pancreas never gets the signal to produce enzymes. And this is one of the reasons why I'm becoming a big fan of using hydrochloric acid supplements instead of digestive enzymes in people who have digestive issues. So things like frequent burping after meals, um, feeling excessively full after an average sized meal, or bloating would be some symptoms of that. Because if you get the acid and pH right in the stomach, the pancreas will do its job and secrete the necessary enzymes. There are definitely times when your pancreas might not be keeping up either, and that's when digestive enzymes become more helpful, but I always try to fix the problem at its root, which is why I'm now leaning towards starting with hydrochloric acid instead. So you might also be wondering why your stomach acid would be low, because we always hear about people with acid reflux or heartburn being put on things that actually block acid because too much acid is what's causing the problem, which is really not the case at all. Low stomach acid is much more prevalent than high stomach acid, probably anywhere from 30 up to 50 plus percent of the people that I work with actually have low stomach acid, and this would be caused by one of two things. So the first would be suppression, and the second would be inadequate production. So suppression would be caused by something like su acid suppressing or acid blocking medications. 
So any of the proton pump inhibitor medications, which are called PPIs, and basically everybody seems to be on those these days, and those would be medications like Prilosec. These are so effective that they can actually suppress your stomach acid to almost zero in some cases, which if you've paid attention to anything that I've said in the past five minutes, you'll understand why that could be a huge problem and actually make a lot of digestive issues worse and not better. Because if you have zero stomach acid, then how are you even going to digest your food? Your pancreas certainly won't be releasing any of the enzymes in that case, and you'll have trouble breaking down proteins, but stomach acid is also required to digest minerals like iron and vitamins like B12. So if you don't have any stomach acid, you are well on your way to some very serious vitamin and mineral, mineral deficiencies if you weren't already there because B vitamin deficiency is actually pretty common. Stomach acid is also needed to help protect us from things like harmful bacteria, parasites, and yeast, so you would also be more likely to get an infection with low or no stomach acid. And going back to PPI medications, if you actually read the labels on these medications, you'll see that they are not supposed to be prescribed long-term. I think they are only meant to be used for two weeks or less, but now we have people that have been on them for over 20 years. I have a friend who was put on one in her 30s and basically told that she'd be on it forever or until her symptoms went away, but no one really told her how to make that happen. Another really common cause of low stomach acid, especially in the older population, is an H. pylori infection, which is what causes ulcers. One of the ways that bacteria survive, these bacteria survive is by suppressing stomach acid. And as I just mentioned, stomach acid is one of the things that protects us from pathogens because they can't survive in an acidic environment. And then another really common cause of decreased stomach acid is chronic stress. So in a situation where you have acute or short-lived stress, you'll actually have an increase in stomach acid production, but over the long term, it actually decreases production. And this sort of all goes back and relates to the dysregulation of cortisol, which is a topic for another show entirely, but the easiest way to explain it is that you basically have two states for your nervous system, either sympathetic or parasympathetic, and only one of these can be activated at a time. So if you're in a chronic state of low-level stress, then you're in a chronic sympathetic state, which means that your body is only prioritizing things that you need for survival. So it's putting all of its available resources towards things that will allow you to fight for survival or to run away. Things like making sure that your lungs and your skeletal muscles have enough blood because those are the things that are going to help you survive. And then at the same time, resources are diverted away from things that are not important to your immediate survival, but are important for long-term survival, like reproductive organs, digestion, and tissue repair and regeneration, though there is some part of your fight-or-flight response that does prepare your body for wound healing. So stomach acid production and gut health aren't important when you're running away from a bear or getting ready to fight to your death which means that your body doesn't care if you're digesting the food that's already in your gut because it's not important to your survival in that moment. And this all makes complete sense when you are actually running away from a bear. And side note, you shouldn't actually run from a bear, but you get what I'm trying to say here. But if you're sitting in traffic or in a meeting and having that same response when your life really isn't in, in danger, but your body can't tell the difference from a physiologic perspective and it has the same reaction. And from an evolutionary perspective, our bodies haven't really adapted to this state of chronic stress to react any differently yet. This is also one of the reasons why it's so important to chill out while you're eating rather than rushing around and trying to shove your lunch in your mouth. It's important to make sure 
that your body can actually digest the food you're eating. And a lot of people don't realize that their mental state and what they're doing while they're actually eating really affects that. As much as you don't want to hear this, and I feel like a broken record when I talk about this, but it's so important, but if you're having trouble healing or having symptoms that just won't seem to go away, you really need to look at how you're managing your stress. And I don't really love the term stress management, but I prefer to suggest that people work on their resilience or how they react to stress because stress is a part of life but how you handle it can have a huge impact on your health. When it comes to food and digestive issues, things like making sure you're sitting down while you're eating, chewing your food enough, maybe not watching TV at the same time, but just putting your entire attention on your food. And that can be surprisingly hard for people because it often means that you actually have to face your feelings instead of just zoning out in front of the TV with your dinner. And this gets into a whole different level, but it seems like a lot of times people are much more willing to take a pill or a supplement or even completely overhaul their diet than they are to face their feelings and address the underlying cause of something when it's actually within them. I find that a lot of people would rather take a pill than address the relationship issue that's making them stay at work for 14 hours a day because they'd rather be at work than at home. So moving farther downstream in the digestive process, the chyme passes from your stomach into your small intestine where things like starches get broken down into smaller pieces called disaccharides and monosaccharides. Because in order for nutrients to be absorbed and used by your body for fuel, they need to be in a single molecule form. And that's what happens in your small intestines. There's a lot that can go wrong in the small intestines. One of the most common things is that you just don't get proper breakdown. So rather than being in a single molecule form, they are in bigger pieces and end up hanging around in your small intestine for much longer than they should. And when that happens, they become food for pathogenic or bad bacteria, which is already in your gut. There are over 500 species of bacteria in your gut, and some of them are beneficial and some of them aren't. And just like anywhere else in nature, the balance is really important. But as long as the good outweighs the bad, you usually don't have an issue. But what happens when those food particles don't get broken down in the right way is that they feed the bad bacteria, and then you end up with an overgrowth of these and something that's called SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There isn't usually all that much bacteria in your small intestine, except for at the very end of it, but most of the bacteria is in your colon. In cases of SIBO, you end up with more bacteria in your small intestines, and those bacteria make gas through fermentation when they eat the food that's just hanging out in your small intestine instead of being digested and just passing through. So this causes things like gas and bloating and can even cause changes in stool frequency or consistency. And I know a lot of people think that the stomach is where all the action happens in our digestive system, but your small intestines are really where the magic happens. They have the big job of absorbing all of the nutrients from your food, and unfortunately, it's where a lot of issues occur. And something that I want everyone to understand, because this is what makes dealing with some of these things so difficult, is that these processes and the problems that can occur with them are often more cyclical than linear. So for the gut, if your stomach acid is low, then you aren't digesting your food well in your stomach. Then you also aren't producing pancreatic enzymes because the signal isn't there due to the low stomach acid. And then you aren't breaking down the food in your small intestine well, and it sits around and gets fermented by the bad bacteria, which causes gas and digestive distress. This can go on further to cause inflammation, which makes you more susceptible to bacteria or other gut infections. 
So say you get a gut infection, which further affects your ability to break down food and causes more inflammation and makes your gut leaky. Leaky gut causes your body to have an, immune, an autoimmune response, which continues to promote inflammation in your gut, making it even worse at digesting food. So this cycle just continues to feed itself, pardon the pun, and becomes hard to know exactly where to start fixing it. So if you establish that you have SIBO, then your options for treatment would be either to kill the bacteria with an antibiotic or botanicals, or you starve them out, which is the premise of the GAPS diet. And something that I've come across lately with my clients is FODMAP intolerance, which I think is probably related to SIBO, but it's hard to say because a lot of people aren't interested in paying for the SIBO test. But since FODMAPs are a class of fermentable carbohydrate, well, actually multiple classes of fermentable carbohydrates, People who have SIBO are generally intolerant to FODMAPs, and it seems like maybe you could just eliminate the FODMAPs and be good, but the problem is that things like onions and garlic are FODMAPs, so if you're always avoiding those foods, you could pretty much never go out to eat or buy any sort of packaged food because onions and garlic are everywhere. But it's things like this where it becomes important to figure out what the underlying cause of things are rather than coming at it from the top. So dealing with the underlying infection that hasn't been detected yet or leaky gut or the stress that's causing your gut to be overly sensitive or whatever the underlying cause is. And eventually you can start adding back some of the foods that have been problematic. And often the best approach is to really dial in your diet to the best of your ability and make sure that you've addressed the lifestyle and stress portion of the equation. And if those things don't give you the results that you're looking for, then it might be time to get some testing done. And if you aren't responding to a gut healing protocol, and by not responding, I mean that your symptoms aren't improving after about 30 days, then it's a strong case for something like an opportunistic infection. And the bacteria that cause the infection are a normal part of your digestive tract, and they don't cause any issues, like I said, as long as they're balanced out with good bacteria. Another problem could be bacteria that don't even belong in your gut, and those can get in through the food that you eat. And we also have the issue of parasites. And there are some parasites that depending on who you talk to, so some doctors feel like they are a normal part of the digestive tract, and there are others who will tell you that they definitely cause problems. But I think the bigger picture here is important because in someone with a healthy gut and a good balance of the good bacteria, these types of things may not cause any issues at all. So it's not a problem for them. But then if you have someone who has a problem with the balance of their gut flora and they have a lot of stress in their life, then the same thing that doesn't bother one person with the healthy gut can cause a lot of symptoms in someone else. There's also things like yeast overgrowth, which yeast is also a normal part of your digestive tract, but just as with everything else, the good bacteria keeps the yeast in check. So when there isn't enough good bacteria, yeast can overgrow. And if any of these are present, no matter what you're eating or what supplements you're taking, if you have a gut infection of any kind, things aren't going to work right. And in this case, digestive discomfort is one of the symptoms you would experience if you had an infection. But unfortunately, it's not always that easy and straightforward. Because the inflammation that's caused by these infections becomes widespread, you can have symptoms that don't seem at all related to your gut, but are in fact caused by a gut infection. One of the most common ways for this to manifest is with skin issues. So things like psoriasis and eczema, which have an autoimmune component, but are really connected to leaky gut. I think something like 40% of people with leaky gut don't actually have any digestive symptoms, and it's really important to understand that because I see a lot of people who, when I tell them that they have leaky gut, are like, but I don't have any stomach issues. 
but then we treat them for leaky gut and their symptoms get better. There's also a lot of literature and research on depression and how it might actually be inflammatory in nature, and that's definitely connected with your gut health. So for example, anytime you have inflammation, the gut releases these inflammatory mediators called cytokines into your blood, and these travel into your brain and suppress activity in your frontal cortex, which is exactly what causes depression. Then in terms of weight loss resistance, cortisol is involved. So if you have a gut infection that causes inflammation, which activates your stress response, and then you release cortisol, and really this could happen with any type of infection or illness, which is where you get into that ugly cycle again. But inflammation itself is actually linked to weight gain and the metabolic issues that are seen in metabolic syndrome, um, which if you want more information on that, you can listen to the episode where we talked about insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. There are studies that have shown that inflammation and in the gut and inflammatory cytokines can suppress activity in your hypothalamus, which plays a big role in weight regulation. So if your hypothalamus isn't working properly, it throws off your body's ability to regulate your weight. In order to fix this, you have to identify what's going on. And this is where stool testing comes in. So there are different tests available depending on who you work with, but this is really the most accurate way to determine what's happening. And then the treatment would depend on what type of organism you're dealing with. Then if you have multiple infections, that makes the situation more complicated. And I definitely don't recommend self-treating in most of these cases because you can really get into some dangerous territory, especially if you are dealing with more than one type of infection. If you are into managing this on your own, then you would want to do a 30-day gut healing protocol. And if you see no change at all, then I would definitely suggest getting some testing to see what's happening. If you do a 30-day protocol and you do see some improvement, but you aren't back to where you want to be, then I would say stick with it for another 30 or even 60 days in some cases and then see where you're at. But if you ever reach a point where your improvement has plateaued and you still aren't really really where you want to be, then I would definitely get some help. If the issue is just diet related, then it should improve pretty quickly. And when I say gut healing protocol, I'm referring to something like a strict paleo diet or a whole 30 or even a GAPS approach would work, or a paleo elimination where you remove eggs and nightshades. But whatever you're doing, you need to make sure that you're eating plenty of bone broth because that's so important for gut healing. And you also want to make sure that you're getting fermented foods. And of course, as we already talked about, you absolutely need to address your stress. A couple of other things to keep in mind when it comes to gut healing is that you want to make sure you're chewing your food enough, as we already talked about, as well as making sure that you're relaxed and not eating in a rush. In general, eating more seafood, more vegetables, more fermented food, more organ meats, which obviously is everybody's favorite, and more bone broth will help to improve your gut health. You can use lemon juice, apple cider vinegar, or betaine hydrochloric acid to support your stomach acid production. Um, I don't suggest doing any of these things without the guidance of a practitioner and definitely don't go drinking straight apple cider vinegar because that can sometimes be just as problematic. In general, I would advise working with a practitioner on these issues because they can really help figure out what you should do next when something doesn't work or how to troubleshoot some of these issues. All right, that's all I've got for you this week. If you are loving the show or just enjoyed this week's episode, I would love it if you would head to iTunes or to the podcast app on your phone and leave a rating or a review. I have gotten a few messages from people who have tried to leave reviews, but they don't seem to be going through or showing up, and it sounds like it's an issue with iTunes. So if you tried to leave a review and couldn't, I do still appreciate you. 
Also, if you have a question that you would like me to answer, feel free to send me an email, leave a comment on a blog post, or come find me on Instagram and ask me all of your questions. You'll be able to find show notes for this episode at marthaflorence.com slash episode 17. See you next week. Thank you.